0: This week's Tribcast is sponsored by Texas A&M University. Two-thirds of U.S. adults say the presidential election is a significant source of stress. One Texas A&M psychologist shares tips for managing your mental health. More at tamu.edu. And Texas Farm Bureau. Get the latest in farm and ranch news, wildlife, and a recap of the day's markets on Texas Ag Today, the only daily ag news podcast in Texas. More at texasfarmbureau.org slash radio.
1: Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tripcast for November 4th, 2020, the day after the election Tripcast, where all the panelists are running on three hours of sleep or less. I am Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics for the Texas Tribune, and this week I'm joined by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Abby, Washington Bureau Chief, Abby Livingston. Hi. And politics reporter, Patrick Spitek. Good afternoon. Thanks, y'all, for joining us. Today, it is the doom and gloom Tribcast for Texas Democrats. They came into the night with a lot of high hopes. Could Texas flip blue? Could Democrats flip the Texas House? How many congressional seats will Democrats take over? Not will they flip congressional seats, but how many? And it turns out the answer to those questions are likely no, no, and zero. Uh, a, a bummer for the Democrats uh, on election night. Ross, what happened? Uh, you know, the t- the state's not turning
2: blue. You know, there's a- been this Democratic line for a long, long time. This is not a Republican state. It's an undervoting state. And they got the vote that they wanted. They got a big turnout. Everybody voted. Um, and it's a red state. And, you know, the story of the night was that you got all those voters out and, In a way, nothing happened. They didn't overturn any carts. We still have a full slate of statewide offices held by Republicans, including the judiciary. We still have a congressional delegation uh, that's got the same numbers. The Senate changed by one seat in the favor of the Democrats, but the seat that the Republicans lost was a seat a Republican had won in a special election and and that almost everybody looked at and said, that's probably a Democratic district. And in the Texas House, where there was all this conversation about picking up nine seats and getting a majority and at a minimum picking up, you know, three or four seats, if you were a real pessimist, uh, the net change was zero. So they spent millions and millions of dollars. And in a partisan way, anyway, the world looks the same in Texas as it did five weeks ago.
1: Right. I mean, some of those House races in particular, I mean, some people who we thought were in big trouble, you know, the Angie Chin Buttons, the Morgan Meyer, Myers might have actually survived here. I mean, it's just, uh, did did anyone see this coming, Patrick? Is this, I mean, in terms of Republicans' goals, is this beyond a lot of people's kind of range of expectations here? Well, I think Democrats certainly didn't see this coming.
3: And I think that, you um, Republicans, while they were always much more confident in their chances than the Democrats were, uh, did not expect it to be this much of a blowout, especially when it comes to, I think, the State House fight. Um, I mean, all the signals from Republicans in the lead up to Tuesday when it came to the State House fight was this is going to be really close battle to the finish. I think that's what the president of the Republican State Leadership uh, Committee had told us and other reporters. Um, so they were bracing for a really close finish. And as you may have just pointed out, it's looking like Democrats are not going to even have a net gain of any seats at this point in the state house. And so I'm sure Republicans are probably, even though they were always feeling a little better than Democrats were, um, you know, are still probably a little shocked at, at their fortunes right now.
1: All right, let's, let's just kind of go down the ballot here and talk about what were the mm-hmm. marquee races uh, coming into last night. You know, obviously the top of the ticket, the race for president, people were talking about could could Biden kind of pull off an upset here? Um, in that you know, the who will be the next president remains undetermined. We we just saw some some uh, news outlets call Wisconsin for Biden uh, before we jumped on here, which is a, a seems to be a good sign for him, but still you know too close to call right there. But Texas is certainly not too close to call. A six percent margin, uh, that's about three percent points uh, smaller than the margin in 2016. Uh, but Abby. I think fair to say Democrats had been hoping for a little bit closer than that, wouldn't you say?
4: Absolutely. Um, I think that there's uh, a couple things going on. Um, One, I do think, despite all the hollering in the state at the Biden campaign to come uh, invest more time and energy in Texas, it probably was a pretty smart move in retrospect of the Biden campaign to kind of do what they needed to do to appease the Texas delegation and not veer off because I think there would be a whole bunch of uh, blame going at them for looking at Texas in retrospect and they're still battling it out for, I guess, Michigan and Pennsylvania, which that was sort of the game plan. Um, But yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I posed the theory that maybe down-ballot candidates could lift Biden and that was absolutely wrong. I mean, these candidates, um, uh, I can't tell you how, the, the central thing going on here behind the scenes is just how bad the polling was all across America. And this was public polling. This was private polling that reporters see and hear about. Um, I will say there was one pollster who had a pretty good handle toward the close of the Texas races, and that was Ragnar Research. Um, I was briefed on some of their polling, and there was a sense that Republicans were starting to come home in the final stretch in some of these down-ballot races, and it was giving um, some reassurance. But um, it's uh, if I even touched that publicly, Democrats would jump all over me in disbelief. And so um, I, I just think that there was um, a big polling problem and also um, more down-ballot. The metrics that I've been trained through other news organizations to look at races just don't matter anymore, and that's specifically fundraising. Um, there was so much hope and investment put into races in this state. And um, one of the reasons fundraising matters is because it reflects an organization's or a campaign's organization structure. Is this candidate doing what they need to do um, to be disciplined? Um, And uh, when the money comes in maybe a little too easy through Act Blue, I think it can inflate um, candidates' chances. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, they made a little progress at the presidential level, but that's all you can really take away from this for the Democrats.
1: And, and one thing I think a lot of people were looking at last night were some of these counties in South Texas areas that um, have traditionally voted Democrat in recent years. Um, Hillary Clinton performed pretty well. We saw Joe Biden not do very well there in the primaries and that continued into the, uh, the general election. You know, some of these counties that, um, you know, Clinton was winning by 30 and having that margin cut in in half. Uh, you know, Trump winning Zapata County, which was just kind of stunning to see. Uh, Ross, what do you make of, of what happened in South Texas yesterday?
2: Well, I think it was a train wreck. You know, the, the numbers for Trump were still bad down there, but they weren't as bad as the Democrats need for them to be to offset other areas of the state. Um, the Biden campaign, you know, was showing some problems in numbers with Hispanic voters in some of the polling. Um and you know there were some late notes from some of the Democrats in Texas. Uh, uh Hinojosa, the chairman of the Gilberto Hinojosa, the chairman of the Texas Democratic Party, said, you know, they need to do something in South Texas and get things going down there. They didn't generate the votes that they needed. Um and you can see some of those, uh, you can see it in other races as well. You know, there were a couple of, Abby can talk about these a little bit better, but there were a couple of congressional races down there that weren't on anybody's radar. They were unexpectedly close. I don't know as we speak whether the big change here was in turnout, whether we didn't get the turnout that would be expected, you know, as other parts of the state, you know, increased their turnout, whether this part of the state increased, it's the same way. Or whether there's a change in sentiment, whether these are some voters changing their minds, moving from the Hillary camp before to the Trump camp now. Um, but, you know, it's clearly a real problem structurally for the Democrats, and, and it sticks out on a map. It's a geographic problem. As you said, you know, there are counties down there that are red that have never been red before.
3: Yeah. So, Go ahead, Patrick. I was going to say, just in terms of these uh, South Texas counties, I, mean, I think it goes to show that this suburban expansion is 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 not enough, at least at this point, for statewide Democratic victory. That it needs to be this recipe that's you know beyond that goes beyond just the suburbs becoming more competitive and the cities becoming bluer. Um, you can't afford to have any slips sl- you know slippage um, in in those uh, Hispanic majority counties. You need to obviously. You know, spur greater turnout and then get better numbers there. Um, but we've, you know, we've had, you know, since 2018, especially this kind of conversation about whether for Democrats that, that path to statewide dominance runs through the suburbs um, or it runs through turning out, um, you know, communities of color it, it would, better than they have in the past. And the answer is, is both. And you can't just depend on that suburban expansion because that suburban expansion, you know, I think by most counts that I've seen, did continue last night. And Joe Biden did build on. Um, you know margins, previous margins in places like Fort Bend County and Hayes County, um, but it just—it's just not enough. It has to be part of this recipe.
1: Yeah, yeah. Trump. I mean, excuse me. Biden uh, winning Hayes County, south of Austin, Williamson County, north of Austin. Uh, as of right now, at least losing Tarrant County by point two points uh and closed the margins in Collin County and Denton County and in DFW but still lost those areas. I think that's exactly right what you talk about Patrick is that it's got to be both. You can't just improve in the suburbs or you know just really turn out the um the um people of color communities of color you you've got to do both. That being said, I mean looking back at the overall trend line You see, you know, Romney winning the state by 16 in 2012, Clinton winning the state by nine in 2016, and now what looks like a six, maybe slightly under six point margin in 2020. I mean, is there any reason to think that these overall trends, while maybe that that timeline that Democrats would have liked to have seen compressed a little bit. I mean, can you, is there at least hope there for the Democrats that that these things are still pointing in their direction kind of long-term?
4: I'll jump in. I talked to a Republican just before we started taping and um, he was a little bit, uh, he was not a Texan and um, uh, was a little less of a champagne toasting drinking person right now. Um, And he felt like this reflected that, Maybe Texas Republicans bought themselves some time demographically, um, and it you know it, it only helps that they have control of redistricting. Um, but I think it's just an open question. I think American politics in Texas in particular is really unstable, and I just I'm very cautious predicting going forward. Um, you know, I, I think the first indicator we're going to have of where things are going is what Democratic recruitment looks like next cycle. Um, and that'll start in a few months, but do, do Democrats who, um, had thought about maybe running for Congress, look at these results and say, "Ah, it's not worth it. It's not worth my time. Um, you know, why would you want to run against Chip Roy when he built his margin against the, one of the best funded challengers in the country in Wendy Davis? Um, do Democrats line up to run for governor? I think it's that, that's going to be the first indicator, but, um, for the time being Republicans are in a very good position to set themselves up, set the table for the next decade.
1: Right, and, and that's because they they handled themselves uh, quite well tonight. It's also because they're going to be in charge of all kind of levers of state government during a redistricting session next year. It's because, and then there's also this situation that at some point, there's not going to be Donald Trump on the ballot, you know, either whether that's in 2022 because he's not the president anymore and people aren't thinking about him when they come to the polls or 2024 when presumably, you know, he's he would be term limited out. But, you know, what is this what do the suburbs in Texas look like in a post Trump world is another question that I don't think we know the answer to. And one of the reasons I don't think we know the answer to that is because we have once again seen that there is a a group of Texas voters who's willing to kind of go against the Republicans at the top of the ticket, be it Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. But this is the go- Watkins,
2: this is Watkins favorite. Theory. Yes, go ahead. My favorite
1: thing, the uh, the Beto Abbott uh, Biden Cornyn voter. I mean, you know, one person who would have loved to have lost by six percentage points last night is MJ Hagar, because uh, she, you know, looks like it might have been a double digit loss for her. What happened there in that race, Patrick? Yeah, that's a great question.
3: Um, I think that that race was, you know, the ultimate margin there was was pretty surprising. It's right now at 10 points. Corrin himself had said before the election that he expected it to be a single-digit race, which at the time all the polling confirmed that it was on track to be a single-digit race. And so I think that margin ended up being... Um, you know, ended up being pretty remarkable. You know, Cornyn outperformed Trump's margin, you know, by getting, by having a 10 point margin and Trump having a six point margin. He only slightly, I think, outperformed uh, Trump's actual vote share, it may have been just by a, a percentage point more. So, to, you know, he ran ahead of Trump, but depending on how you define it, it wasn't, you know, significantly ahead of Trump. Um, and, you know, I asked him on his election night, uh, you know, call, if he felt one of the things that helped him in this race was building a brand independent of Trump, and um, you know, big surprise, he didn't really bite on that question <laughs> and just pivoted to talking about how he and Trump have, uh, you know, partnered to deliver results for Texas. Um, but I think there's no doubt that he was he was sweating a little bit at the end, if only because of the uncertainty of all these new voters coming in and early voting and early voting being up overall so much, and then also all this late. Democratic outside spending that came in at the end. And so that was a race that I think ended on an uncertain note and obviously worked out, I think, better than expected for Cornyn.
2: You know, it's worth pointing out that that race was the statewide baseline for Republicans. If you throw out the presidential race for a minute, all of the races from Cornyn all the way down through Railroad Commission, the Texas Supreme Court, and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals were decided by 9 to 11 points. Uh, It's about a 10-point difference between Republicans and Democrats, and the only race that um, was closer than that was the one that was, you know, arguably, you know, to some extent a referendum on the president, and that race was tighter, but, you know, Cornyn set a, um, or at least was the, the highest person on the ballot with that 10-point difference that held all the way through the statewide races.
1: Well, We, um, in addition to the race for Senate, we had a lot of kind of big ticket congressional races. Abby, you already mentioned the Wendy Davis seat. Um, I think another one that I think caught a lot of people's attention was the TX23 seat um, in which uh, Tony Gonzalez uh, seemed to fairly, you know, at least as far as that seat goes, fairly comfortably uh, pick up a victory there. Uh, I mean, the, 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 we saw so much money come into Texas for, for democratic pickup opportunities, and it looks like it might've all gone for nothing. Uh, what's, what's the mood of, of the Democrats and, and, you know, also on the other side of the Republicans, uh, after, after a pretty surprising night on in, in that area of the ticket.
4: In Washington, um, or national, I guess, cause not everyone's in Washington, but, uh, Republicans are clearly jubilant. Um, the The description to me is startled. Um, there there were a number who were bracing for cataclysm um, as recently as a couple days ago. Um, the Democratic caucus is about to rumble. Um, there is a congresswoman in South Florida named Donna Shalala who lost re-election, a Democrat. She's a very prominent person. She's a former cabinet member. And she was not even put on the um, Democratic kind of, they call it red to blue, or not red to blue, but uh, front line, which is the kind of like signal to donors, this person's in trouble, an incumbent, we need to take care of them. Um, and then they went on offense in Texas. And so um, there is a lot of anger and blame going around the Democratic caucus right now. I did ask one senior uh, Capitol Hill democratic aid, you know, does, did you feel like your hand got burned on the stove of Texas? And he laughed and said, yes. Um, but I was like, does that deter in the future? And he was a little bit, um, hesitant. He said, clearly there is a problem, um, with polling and there is a problem with, um, Hispanic outreach within the party. Um, the polling problem has got to get fixed before they can make any strategic decisions going forward. Um, But he seemed to, the thing he pointed out about midterms is generally they go against the president. And at this point it looks like Biden will be president. But um, Democrats tend to overperform in recent years when Donald Trump is not on the ballot. Um, And so there's a little bit of glimmer of hope that maybe something can be done in Texas. So, It wouldn't shock me if they start playing in Texas, but um, not to the scale that they did this time. Um, But additionally, um, going back to South Texas, Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, a Democrat, right now is only up by about three points. And that is supposed to be a safe Democratic seat. With so much voter turnout, I kind of had a hunch something like that would happen, but it never dawned on me it would happen down there. And so when Democrats look at Texas, their first objective is to defend Colin Allred, Lizzie Fletcher, and Vicente Gonzalez is now added to that list. And nothing else can happen um, in their priorities until those seats are protected. And so um, I think you're going to see a much more conservative approach going forward to Texas in the sense of strategic conservatism.
1: You know, prior to this election, a lot of people like to talk about how Texas was kind of the national Piggy bank for these parties, and you'd come in and you'd raise money here, but you wouldn't necessarily spend it here. And this year, um, with I guess the possible exception of the the president's race, although there was a little bit of money spent on the Democratic side here, you know, we saw a lot of that money stay here. Do you think Ross that there's going to be a credibility problem with the people who were? you know, trying to get people to spend money here, to say, you know, how are you going to come to me in 2022 or 2024 and say, spend money in Texas when we dumped all this money into the state and it got us nothing?
2: I feel like I did this uh, trip cast in 2014. (laughs) Uh, After the battleground Texas effort and the Wendy Davis for governor campaign crashed on the shoals of Lake Abbott, um, the question when you get this many people to commit this big and get this enthusiastic and then you bust is that you go back to them and your elevator pitch is, no, really this time. Um, You have to convince them that something significant has changed either in the environment or in the execution of of the operatives in a party or both of those things probably. And I think, you know, the autopsies that the Democrats do in Texas this time, we're going to have to answer questions like, you know, what happened to the Hispanic vote? What was the what was the deal? You told us if turnout went up that the state would become bluer and bluer and bluer, and those things didn't happen. And we also spent, you know, a bazillion simoleons on a bunch of races that produced absolutely nothing except for one Senate seat in West Texas. So, you know... If you go to you know if you go to the you go out elephant killing, go out and find the big animals with a lot of money who are going to support your campaign, you're going to have to answer all of those questions. Um, I think at some point, you know some of these are going to go their own way. You know it's increasingly easy in politics to go around the parties and have your own pack or your own organization or things like that. You know a lot of this money is entrepreneurial entrepreneurial. And I think they're going to look at a lot of things like that and say, look, the the old structures aren't aren't working for us.
1: All right. Well, one big area uh, of the election night last night that we haven't talked about yet is the Texas House. But first, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors.
0: Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. And Lone Star College leads the way in helping Texas get back to work by training tomorrow's workforce today. More at LoneStar.edu.
1: All right, so the premier kind of item on the ballot this year, the thing we had been talking about really ever since 2018 and Beto came so close was, is the Texas House flippable you know, can't Beto wins nine seats that were held by Republicans if Repu- if Democrats can win those seats in, in 2020, then they control the House. Turns out that did not happen. And now we already have a new House speaker, which we can talk about here in a second. Maybe we do. We'll see if that <laughs> that holds up. But um, first, Patrick, I mean, you know, what happened in this Texas, this Texas House battle? Did, did Democrats get a little over their skis here and thinking they could flip it? Uh, they
3: absolutely did. They need. They were nine seats away from the majority, um, and as of you know this moment, it looks like they're only going to end up picking up a seat. But they also have lost at least one seat, and so they're looking at the potential of not having even a a net a net gain of of any seats, which is really I think uh, a disaster for them and probably the biggest embarrassment for them at any level uh, in Texas politics uh, this past Tuesday. Um, They talked a very big game about flipping the Texas house. Um, They were cranking out internal polls uh, every other day for a period of a few weeks this summer. Um, You know, there was a lot of national investment, um, you know, and I think they let expectations get, get way too high. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, <laughs> the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, the House did not flip and there's the potential that they don't even end up having a net gain of any seats, that it's a total wash, that it's a net zero situation. Um, so I think this is was pretty catastrophic, um, even by the standards of, of what happened last night for Democrats and other places in Texas.
1: How much would we say that the end of straight ticket voting factored in on this. I mean, we did see some seats. I mentioned Angie Chin Button and um, Morgan Meyer at the the top of the show, you know, two Dallas County Republicans in a county where uh, Biden performed extremely well at the top of the ticket. Um, I I wanted to ask you about that, Patrick, and then also the inability to go door to door knocking, which is something that you wrote about um, prior to this. Um, Were there some just kind of Strategic disadvantages that Democrats had that we didn't pay enough attention to ahead of the election.
3: Well, I think we wrote we wrote about one of them
1: Uh, (laughs) capturing that door knocking. Um, At
3: least in the eyes of of their Republican critics, um, you know that was a fatal mistake. Um, Not that Democrats didn't go door knocking, but that they just weren't as willing. Uh, to And as uh, aggressive in resuming in-person campaigning as Republicans were, uh, they really believe, they being Republicans, that they got a uh, pretty big advantage on Democrats uh, by doing that um, and, you know, that was reiterated this morning by Governor Abbott's campaign that they believe that that was one of the things that really helped them have as good of a good as good of a night as they did last night. When it comes to straight ticket voting, um, you know it's still hard to tell. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of research and analysis done coming out of this election about what impact that had. A- Abbott's campaign admitted that they were very concerned about the uncertainty surrounding that, um, but that the initial signs to them, and this is what they said as of this morning, was that it, it ended up you know, working out in their favor. Now, I don't know exactly what data they're looking at or how they're crunching those numbers. Like I said, I'm sure we're all gonna be Um, going through that on our own in the coming days and weeks. Uh, But Abbott's, you know, I think the biggest factor here was just education about it. And Abbott's campaign did do that with Republican voters. They had a statewide TV buy, statewide radio buy, um, you know, telling, reminding voters that, you know, straight ticket voting is gone just vote manually vote Republican all the way down the ballot. Abbott did a, a, several media appearances in the final days of the election where every chance he had, he reminded audiences often on conservative radio um, that straight ticket voting was gone and the need to go all the way down the ballot and manually vote Republican. So there was a real, there was a real effort on his part. Um, I don't think I saw on the Democratic side, and I'm sure as soon as these words leave my mouth, uh, someone will text me or, or I'll get a text afterward, but I did not see a, as large of an effort at voter education around this on, on the Democratic side or, or on the same scale as the Abbott campaign
1: did. Sure. So then, you know, we went to bed pretty confident we knew that the Republicans had held on to the House. And we woke up and Dade Phelan was planning a press conference to announce that he was pretty confident that he had the votes to become the next speaker. He had a press conference uh, around lunchtime today in which he soon after released a list of 83 House members who he said are backing him for his uh, bid for the gavel. 83, of course, being more than the 76 you would need to vote to support you, Ross um what do you make of uh, the idea of speaker feeling and and do you feel like you know we we did see some uh, some some comments from one of his opponents, Ashby, saying this isn't over yet. do you do you feel like he's do you feel pretty confident that he's got it uh, wrapped up here?
2: He's put a bunch of names on a list. you know the the question in a speaker's race is always you know, there's always some liar's poker going on, but you know, the question in a speaker's race is, do you have the signatures and if you have the signatures and there are more than 76 of them or more than 75 of them um, then you're the speaker um, ashby can say whatever he wants anybody else can challenge it but you know until you prove Phelan doesn't have the votes phelan has got the votes um he's from the same faction of the party that elected bonan, dennis Bonin, two years ago um, it seems like that might coalesce pretty quickly A couple of the important Democrats who were in the race until the Democrats didn't have the House, Symphonia Thompson, Joe Moody, uh, they've signed up. Um, He's certainly got the momentum, even if it turns out that he doesn't have the votes. And I don't have any reason to think he doesn't have the votes.
3: You know, yeah, mentioning the Democrat, obviously he has Democrats on that list, including some of the the, the people who were previously uh, running for speaker on the Democratic side. I think the swiftness, though, in which he was able to put together this list including the Democrats after the election last night, uh, goes to show, um, you know, how aggressively at least that block of Democrats is trying to, you know, consolidate behind a speaker or Republican speaker that they view as most palatable to their cause or their, their policies and their agenda, which, you know, as we've seen before in speaker politics in Texas, you know, that is uh, a blessing and a curse, (laughs) because it signals to folks in your own party that, you know, the Democrats like you, they think that they're going to get compromises uh, out of you, and they're going to get an agenda that they, you know, would, would prefer out of you. And so um, don't think this is over yet. As as you pointed out, Trent Ashby, another speaker candidate, um, is not you know dropping out of the race you know upon this news, and you know wants to continue forging forward. Um, and I'm sure there will be some um, you know conversations within the caucus about whether Phelan is uh, you know conservative enough, or is going to as a result of this Democratic Republican coalition he's put together, could you know sell out uh, Republicans in certain policy fights.
4: May I jump in with a quick question? As the outsider, what's he like temperamentally?
2: Uh, He's, you know, he's pretty even keeled. He was the chairman of the state affairs committee, which is a little bit like the house bomb squad. They get all of the really gnarly or a lot of the really gnarly bills over there and they didn't have an incident. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good sign. Uh, He's even handed enough that uh, the members weren't storming about mad at him for withholding this vote or holding that vote, whatever. Um, He was a House staffer before he was a House member, kind of came up that way. So he understands the culture of the House. He understands the sibling rivalry between the House and the Senate. Um, He's conservative, but he's not in the Freedom Caucus part of the Republican Party in the House. Um, I mean, all of that sort of checks the boxes. And, you know, the other box that he checks that seems to be a, a feature and not a bug for speakers lately is a lot of people look up and go, Now, who is this? Um, So, you know, I I think there's, you know, there's not a a lot of, Dennis Bondin may be an exception to that, but there's not a lot of um, marks on him in terms of he made me happy or he made me unhappy in that fight and this fight and the other fight. So there's not a, he doesn't have a a history in the House problem. Um, I do think that there's a possibility here that to kind of to Patrick's point that there might've been a pinky swear before this election where A group of Democrats running for speaker and a group of Republicans running for speaker sort of exchanged secret vows to if it's your side, I'm with you. And if it's my side, you're with me. Um, The way this came together so quickly kind of argues that there were some of those kinds of informal pacts in place. um, Because we haven't even got a final, final count on the House. You know, we've got a couple of races that might be contestable, but we've also apparently got a speaker.
1: We shall see. Uh, as you said, a lot can happen between now and January, but having that list out there is certainly a good sign for you. That is all we have for today. And uh, thank you guys for talking about a uh, very interesting election in 2020. And uh,
4: now on to 2022, I guess. And Too <laughs> soon. Least... I need it nap.
1: <laughs> Oh, and we we also have a legislative session come January, so plenty plenty to talk about on the TripCast moving forward. Um, I want to say thank you again to Ross, Abby, and Patrick. Thank you to our producer, Michael Ray, and thank you to our sponsors, Texas A&M University, the Texas Farm Bureau, Raise Your Hand Texas, and Lone Star College. Have a great week, everyone.